we do thank you for um, gathering us here as we do each week, want to acknowledge and express our gratitude for um, the privilege of being able to worship together and at this point with, um, without worry, without fear, to come together in the, the freedoms that we enjoy to sing and uh, to uh, express our corporate worship to you. We thank you for how you have established order in this society and you have established civil government and invested it with an authority and you have established uh, those who will, uh, particularly in our context, uh, police officers and others who help to maintain uh, order in what would, with sin ran rampant, would be a chaotic society. And so we thank you for those who step up and uh, and are used by you to um, meet our needs uh, in times of want in this world. And we do pray that for David and for Elias that you would give them the courage and the strength to fulfill their job and to do it in a way that is both a light to the world and um, fulfills your design for good to others. And Father, now as we open up your word together, we ask that Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher, that is your ministry, You have given us your word, it is the living word, and we now ask that you would enlighten our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word, um, because you indwell us, and it is your desire to increase our worship and to conform us to the image of our Savior. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, in your bulletins it says 1 John 1, 1 through 7, and... uh, but we're not going to be there this morning. Uh, we are going to get there eventually, uh, but we're going to have selected scriptures this morning. So there is a, a bit of a misprint. It is uh, fully and totally and completely 100% my fault, uh, so forgive me for it. Uh, actually, the title of the message this morning is The Spirit of Christ in Believers. The Spirit of Christ in Believers. So we're taking a short detour uh, before we get back into Ecclesiastes next week. And uh, this is a topic that we had looked at uh, many years ago, but seems appropriate especially to uh, now as we have just celebrated or taken a time to remember particularly as, as, uh, from the season of Christmas uh, about the birth of Christ and the, the person of the eternal Son of God becoming flesh so that he could stand in our place as our substitute, as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, as our God. I want to introduce uh, this thought with uh, the reality that many people define themselves as being spiritual. You ever heard that? I'm a spiritual person, right? I, I said that before I was saved. I'm a spiritual person. And generally what the world means by saying I'm a spiritual person is I'm, I'm, I'm open to uh, things outside of myself, to the idea of uh, God in some defined way or undefined way usually. Uh, and I'm, I'm open to, or I'm consider, I think more about internal things. I look beyond just the external, and I, I think about who we really are and deeper questions than just uh, the going through the details of life. And so I'm a spiritual person. I'm kind of open to different ideas about God and, and so forth. Uh, and so that's how a lot of people define themselves uh, spiritually. 
But there is, it is, and why we would uh, say that there are a lot of problems with that, uh, the Bible does recognize that we are spiritual beings and we are spiritual people. However, he constrains that, of course, to only two. There's only two kinds of spiritualities and two kinds of spiritual beings uh, on the face of the earth. One is those who are spiritually aligned with Satan and his kingdom and under his dominion, who are dead spiritually, darkened, ignorant, and so forth, enslaved to sin, and those who have the Holy Spirit, those who belong to the kingdom of Christ, those who have been transformed from the domain of darkness, the authority is the term there, the authority of Satan and his kingdom of this earth, and been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, uh, Christ. And so those are the only two realities, those who are of the spiritual lineage and the spiritual nature and the spiritual likeness to Satan and the demonic realm and those who possess the Holy Spirit and by faith are in union with Christ and indwelled by the Spirit of God and have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that's then what it means, biblically speaking, to be a spiritual person, is to be somebody who actually possesses the Holy Spirit, is in union with Christ, is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and lives in the power of that Spirit, of the Holy Spirit within them. And so the idea that we'll look at this morning, the reality is uh, the Spirit of Christ in believers. And so we're going to look at just two broad points. We'll break this up. One is to acknowledge first that Jesus was the perfect Spirit-empowered man, the God-man indeed, but a perfectly Spirit-empowered humanity is, is how he lived his life. And secondly, that Christians have the Spirit of Christ. Those are the two broad points. First, let's consider this, that Jesus was the perfect spirit-empowered man. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man, and yet as a man, he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, which is the clear testimony of Scripture and of the church, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things came into being by Him or through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being, and Him was life, and He was the life of men among men. Later, it was this Word that became flesh. It was this Word that reveals and exegetes the Father. It is this Word alone, though no man has seen God that is in the bosom of the Father, who is in this near and intimate relationship with Him. He is indeed the eternal Son of God, and all of John really is emphasizing that point. It's been referred to, the Gospel of John, as you're familiar with some of you, as uh, like a Trinitarian tract. And even though that language wasn't the language of Scripture, the idea that there is the Father and the Son and the Spirit, each who are persons of God, who are God in themselves, and yet constitute the one triune God. And so that is true of Christ. And that is what makes the person of Christ exceptionally distinct that's what is unique and can only be true of Christ is that he has a divine nature, that he is fully God. And there is the mystery of the incarnation uh, there. Uh, and so that is often what is stressed is the deity of Christ. And that is rightly stressed and it's understandable that that would be stressed. However, sometimes in our discussion about the deity of Christ, we forget that he was also the God-man, that he was also fully man, and that he was a man, fully man, for our salvation. And the reality is, is that Christ needed to be a human being and a complete human being and a full human being and fully human just as much as he needed to be divine and God in order to be our mediator and our substitute. You can't have 
Uh, you can't subtract either one. They're both essential to our salvation, that he was God and that he was man. But because of the stupendous and important aspect, the essential aspect of his divinity, we sometimes forget to consider the reality of his humanity. And so that's what I want to focus on a bit more this morning, is the reality that Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, who is God and man, lived in his humility, the eternal Son of God in flesh, in the power of the Holy Spirit as a man. And he did so for our salvation. Now, the fact that the Spirit was involved in the life of Christ is evident from the very beginning of the Gospels and from his very entrance into the world. So Luke makes clear to us in the announcement of the angel to Mary that what will be conceived in your womb in verse 1 is something that is of God. He says specifically in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Because he is formed in your womb by a miracle, by a creative act of the Father. He is preserved from natural generation. There is no human father. He is in the human womb of Mary where he received the full reality of his humanity and was born into the world as a human child. The Spirit is the one who brought that about according to the eternal purposes of God. Now, the only other mention in the early life of Jesus is found in Luke chapter 2, outside of these birth narratives, and that is where Jesus is found in the temple. As you'll remember, he had stayed behind, uh, unbeknownst to his parents. He was listening to the teachers in the temple area. He was asking them questions. They were amazed at his uh, wisdom. The parents were coming. Uh, they went to look for him because they couldn't find him. They did. Child, you know, why have you treated us this way? He says, you know, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And of course, they didn't understand that, but he went and he submitted themselves to him perfectly honoring his mother and his father, even at that young age. But Luke tells us in verse 52 that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. He kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. That is to say that even at this point, at this young age of 12, that he had an awareness of his unique personhood as the Son... And that in this unique awareness of his person as the son, he was fully constrained, fully experiencing, fully limited to the normal confines of a human child. So he did not have, though he is the son of God, infinite wisdom in his humanity, infinite knowledge. Those are things that he humbly set aside. He submitted his human experience. As the son, he does know those things. But as a human being, he did not. As the eternal son of God, he did not increase in wisdom. As the eternal son of God, he did not increase in stature according to his divine nature, but as a human man. He did increase in wisdom, and he did increase in stature. He experienced growth and development as a man. In other, things, in other words, there were things that he knew at 16 that he didn't know at 13. Things he knew at 22 that he didn't know at 20. 
He increased. He learned. He read scripture. He learned the languages. He sat and asked questions. He talked, just as a student and his teacher did common to that time. However, now the most significant mark of the Spirit's fullness, however, in the person of Christ, and where all of the Gospels bring us uh, to and emphasize, is at his baptism. It is at his baptism. And for that, I want to look just at John chapter 1, very briefly. We're, gonna, we're not going to spend a lot of time on these passages, but merely mention them. John, as you know, was, had come, to, he was not the light, but he had come to declare and announce the coming of the light. That light is none other than Jesus Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the eternal Word who is with the Father, the Word that became flesh. And as John is declaring this in his ministry, declaring the coming of Christ, he said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified and said, speaking of this baptism that Jesus underwent, he says, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This was divinely revealed to John that this would be the mark of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one who uniquely had the Holy Spirit and gave testimony to hearers, which will be unfolded throughout the rest of the Gospels, of the Trinitarian nature of God, of the triune, we could say, nature of God. That there is the Father and the Son and the Spirit but the emphasis here is on the Son, who is the Son of the Father, who received uniquely the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is what marked him out as the Son and the Messiah. And in other words, it did two things. One, it showed, or three things, it showed him to be the promised Messiah. This is exactly what the nation of Israel was looking for. One who would come and be marked specifically by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a few passages. Isaiah chapter 11, the shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And he says this, that is aligning him with David in the Davidic promise he says in verse 2 the spirit of the lord will rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord and he will delight in the fear of the lord and he will not judge by what he sees nor make a decision by what he hears but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wickedness and he goes on the point here is that all of these things will be a mark of this unique presence of the Spirit of God in his life. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. Well, how is he marked out? I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. 
And you're familiar with some of these. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has, Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. So in other words, what Israel would have been looking for in their Messiah is a man who has uniquely the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, like none other before them had, like no other prophet had, not even Moses had. We read that, or Kevin did this morning, that he would have the Spirit of God. And this baptism showed that, secondly, it marked his unique relationship with the Father. You are my Son, in whom I am well pleased. That is said of none other. It is said of Christ uniquely, of his own nature, of his own person, by his own merits, by his own quality. He is well pleased. He is without sin. He is pure. He is holy. He is intimate with the Father. Not by grace, but by his own nature, he is intimate with his father. Not by grace is the father well pleased. He is by his own nature. And because of his own relationship with God, one who can please the father in that way and be pleasing to the father. We'll come back to another part later. Thirdly, though, it identified the power of his ministry as the Holy Spirit. It identified that at this beginning of the public ministry of Christ, there was a unique Power displayed in his life as the God-man that was not evident and present before that moment. And that's where all of the Gospels pick up, and we'll expand on that a bit more. That he had, he went immediately, as you'll remember, the Gospels tell us, Luke tells us that he was driven into the wilderness after the baptism by the Holy Spirit to be tested to prove his sinlessness where Israel failed in the wilderness. The Messiah was successful. He proved himself to be the obedient son of God. After that time where he defeated the temptations of the devil in the wilderness, he then moves on and he begins to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he is declaring now his person him as the king of the kingdom, the one who reveals God and with whom all men have to do. And this deity in this receiving of the Holy Spirit is also marked by this or his, his uniqueness in receiving the Holy Spirit is that he not only received the Spirit as the one who descended and remained on him in a unique experience of the presence and power of the Spirit, but he is also the one then who gives the Spirit and baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So this was the mark of the Messiah, and the Messiah who was the Son, which is what the unfolding of his life and his ministry in the gospel is going to make clear. Now, in this way, again, he was what all of the prophets looked forward to in the Messiah, one who would be uniquely endowed with the Spirit, able to sit on David's throne and rule his people in righteousness and ultimately rule over all of the nations as king of the world, as it were. Now, this ministry of the Spirit, then, is evident in his life throughout the gospel accounts. We, as we observe the life of Jesus in Scripture, we see the person and the personality of the eternal Son lived out in humanity, which is an incredible thought on its own. And yet, when we observe the life of Christ, we do not observe the Son as the person of God living as a human being 
in his own power. And that is the unique thing. In his humanity, he has submitted himself completely to the will of God and to live as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you hear that Jesus was acting out of his divine nature or his human nature. Um, That is a tricky statement to make. Scripture doesn't make that kind of distinction. He acts as the person of Jesus Christ. And he is clearly defined as the person of Jesus Christ as the eternal son in flesh, but as the eternal son in flesh, one who lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you a few examples of that. If that catches you off guard, and we'll give a few aspects of it. But first of all, when Peter was sent to the house of Cornelius, listen to how he describes Jesus. He was sent to Cornelius, who was a God-fearing Gentile. He was a centurion. The message of the gospel was going to come to him according to the plan of God because he heard his prayers. The Holy Spirit called out Peter, sent him to him. This was in terms of the expansion of the kingdom, the entrance of the gospel to the world of the Gentiles that Paul would then take up that mantle after Peter and be the apostle to the Gentiles. But here Peter opens up that door because of his unique position and he proclaims to him Christ and listen to what he says In verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In other words, he was a man who uniquely had the Spirit of God, who because of the Spirit's ministry in him, declared him to be and showed him to be the Son of God and the Messiah. What I want you to notice here is that is attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit in him. We're familiar with the words of Jesus throughout the gospel after he had done miraculous works of power and the leader said to him that he does that by Beelzebub, that he cast him out by the ruler of demons and Jesus shows him the foolishness of the logic of that. But then he says, anyone who says a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Anyone who blasphemes or blasphemies will be forgiven many, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means is what you have just seen is a testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, in his life, and if you deny the testimony of God to me, which is through the Spirit and the power of the works that I'm able to do, which show me to be the Messiah... And you do that knowing that these works are real, knowing that these works are attributed to the promise of the Messiah, then you have committed an unforgivable sin. You have have hardened your heart so against the work and the testimony of God to his son that you are outside of his saving grace. Let me give you one other Example of this in John 14. And again, we'll be jumping around and I'm going to move on. Uh, actually, this is supposed to be the shorter part. So hopefully we get to Ecclesiastes next week. But in John 14, he says this. Now we're going to come back to this passage later. I'm only going to highlight just one, one point here. But he says in John 14, 
As Jesus is comforting these disciples, he's, this is the upper room discourse, as you'll remember, from chapter 13 through 16. It's his, this extended conversation, this record of the interactions that Jesus had with his disciples before he was going to go to the cross, lay down his life, be crucified, buried, and then resurrected. He's preparing them for this. He begins in chapter 14, do not let your heart be terrible, believe in God, believe also in me. Why is he saying that? Because he's just told them that he's going away where he's going, they cannot follow. Follow. Peter said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, uh, not so fast, Peter, you're gonna deny me as well. But then he follows up with these, these truths by saying, do not let your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes through explaining to them about his unique role as the mediator, no one comes to the Father, but through him, his unique relationship with the Father, do you not know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And then he tells them in verse 16, he says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Who is this helper, paraclete, advocate, comforter, counselor, different translations, Another discussion, but here it is the Holy Spirit. He says, it is the spirit of truth whom he defines him as in verse 17, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. In what way does the world not see or know the Holy Spirit? Because they did not see or know him in the life of Christ. They did not see or know or perceive spiritually who Christ was. The Spirit was evident in him. The work of the Spirit was evident, but the world did not perceive it. They were unable to perceive it. They were unwilling to receive it, ultimately. But Jesus here is saying that they don't see him or know him, this one who's going to come to you, because they did not recognize me, and they did not recognize him in me. And that's why he says later, and neither will they in you. And neither will they in you. But the point is, is that if you were to look at Jesus, the world should have recognized that the life of Jesus was also an evidence of the presence of God by the Spirit in him. And to not recognize one is to not recognize the other. Why? Because they are God. But it's also why he could say, I'm getting just a little bit ahead, but I will mention this, that it is also why he would say that I won't leave you at orphans, I will come to you. I will come to you in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit, and, and, and here's the thing. He says the Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. In what way was the Spirit with the disciples? He was with the disciples through Jesus, through the ministry of the Jesus. He is with you, the Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. And when he is in you, and I'm not physically present, and yet... I will be present to you, with you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit will be to you an intimate connection with the Father. He will be to you a power for ministry and so forth, but we'll look at that later. I want to look at one other passage, just one other passage. And that is in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3... Uh, Jesus, or John is here speaking about the ministry of Jesus, beginning in verse, um, well, here he goes in verse uh, 30. 
This is John the Baptist speaking. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks, uh, and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Here it is. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In contrast to the prophets of old, in contrast to Moses, in contrast to Elijah, in contrast to Elisha, in contrast to all of the great men of God of the Old Testament, there was a possession of the Spirit in measure. In measure. This sets Christ as the Son of God apart because he has the Spirit without measure. There is no limit. There is no limit in terms of time. There is no limit in terms of degree of the Spirit's power in his life. He had the unique possession of the Spirit that marked him both as man and the Son of God. Though the prophets of old spoke the words of God by the Spirit, or God's word by the Spirit, yet every word that Jesus spoke, he spoke as a manifestation of his own authority, and he spoke the words of God. And here's what he says. He whom the God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, every word that Jesus spoke, every work that Jesus did, was in complete and perfect alignment with the Father. I only speak what I heard from the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. He says, this is the Spirit because... John attaches that he has the spirit without measure. So when Jesus worked the works of God as the son incarnate, his working was equal to the father's working. That's why they wanted to stow him. Jesus said in chapter five, my father is working until now and I myself am working. In other words, I'm doing what my father is doing. They wanted to stone him. Why? He was making God his own father, making himself equal with God. And yet that's precisely what he was demonstrating the possession of the Spirit without measure as the Son enables him equally, look, to rule all things with the Father. This takes us back to the prologue. All things came into being through him, and all things exist for him. And as the God-man, he receives this role as the God-man Messiah because of the Spirit without measure. Look what he says in verse 35, immediately following that. The Father loves the Son. Not only did the Father give the Spirit without measure, but with giving the Spirit without measure, he does this in verse uh, 35. He has given all things into his hand. All things. Paul will talk about that in Colossians. He created all things, things invisible, things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers, all things were created by him. All things were created for him. He'll say later in John 17 in his prayer to the Father, he'll say, all that the Father has is mine and all that is mine is the Father's. In other words, we share them equally. What I want you to notice here, however, is that this ability to be given all things 
reflects who he is as the son through whom all things came into being. But as the God-man, it is because he also received from the Father the Spirit without measure in a way that only the Son could. And by receiving the Spirit without measure, he has also given all things into his hand, that is, into his rule, into his power, into his sovereign relationship to created things and to created people. Moreover, he not only had the Spirit, as already I already noted, but he gives the Spirit and eternal life to those who believe in him as the Son. The point here is, is that the entirety of the life of Christ was marked, and particularly the ministry of Christ, was marked by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, whom he had without measure, is what marked him as the Son of God and as the Messiah and enabled him to complete his ministry in full. Hebrews chapter 9, he offered himself up even by the eternal spirit. Hebrews chapter 9. He was sustained even in his sin-bearing work by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in him. So the Son came in humility, the humility of humanity, so that he could accomplish for us salvation and reconcile us to God. He was the second Adam, our representative, our perfect and only mediator with God, and it had to be this way. He was and is fully man. He's just as much fully man now in his glorified state. He, this humanity that the Son of God added to himself, he always added to himself, or he added to himself for eternity. He is right now the embodied Son of God who is at the right hand of the Father. He is the embodied, incarnate Son of God in his glorified state who will return and establish his kingdom. For us, I would just mention this. Because he was fully man, he is able to be the substitute for men, and because he was fully God the Son, the infinite value of his life and death enabled him to be the substitute and sacrifice for all who came to him. Let me end this section just with this. This quote. Uh, This is by an older theologian, but stated this very clearly. The work of redemption could not have been performed except by a God-man. Man to suffer, God to overcome. Man to receive the punishment we deserved, God to endure and drink it to the dregs. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying, God to apply it to us by overcoming. Man to become ours by the assumption of flesh, God to make us like himself by the bestowal of the Spirit. And that then is the second part, that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God in flesh, was a man, fully human, though fully God. In his humanity, he lived in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what enabled him to do his works of power. It's what enabled him to defeat temptation. He did it as a man, relying on the Holy Spirit, It's what enabled him to endure his sin-bearing death on the cross, Hebrews chapter 9. It's what enabled him to speak the words of God that God wanted to reveal through him to the world. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it is that same Spirit that he gives as a ministry of the new covenant. So here's the second point. We'll see how far we get here. 
that Christians have the Spirit of Christ. Christians have the Spirit of Christ. Now, I didn't mention it, but it's rattling in my head. I, I will. Hebrews chapter 2, that was the whole point of Hebrews chapter 2. Men shared in flesh and blood. The mediator had to share in flesh and blood. He did that so that he could be a merciful and a faithful high priest, our perfect mediator. And we have then, to move on, the Christians have the spirit of Christ. That's the second point. Christians have the spirit of Christ. We have the same spirit in us that enabled the man Christ Jesus to fulfill his ministry and live to the glory of God. Listen to how Peter, or excuse me, Paul, explains that to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5. We have one mediator between God and men. Who? The man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. His humanity enables him to be that mediator. His deity enables him to be that mediator. But there, even Paul himself emphasizes his humanity. But that same spirit that enabled Christ to live as the God-man to overcome temptation, to do the works of God, speak the works of God, and so forth, is the same spirit who Christians have. He gives to spirit. It's the same spirit who indwells us. It's the same spirit that unites us to him. And in this way, Jesus becomes not only our substitute, our mediator, but also our model for life. Think about that. And this is what we'll consider. We are called as Christians to be like Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Those who know Christ, he says in 1 John, ought to walk in the same manner as which he walked. 1 Peter says that Christ is an example for us in how he suffered. He's an example to us in how we lived. We are to live as Christ lived. Jesus says, as I have loved you, you are to love one another. In every way, the life of Christ serves to us as a model, how he lived, how he suffered, how he submitted, how he obeyed to God. Now, his mission was unique as the Son of God. We can't die as an atonement for sin. We don't have the Spirit without measure in the way that Christ did. But inasmuch as the humanity of Christ was a perfect reflection of the righteousness that God requires for us to reflect as his image bearers, we are to be that. And in fact, that is what the resurrection is going to be. Isn't it? He's the second Adam. Philippians 3.21. He will conform our body to the image of his glory, to the, or to the body of his glory. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We will be like him. We'll see him as he is. Why? We will be like him. In the resurrection, our bodies will be conformed to the resurrection glory of Christ. Now, Christ always has a distinction as though he's man, as the God-man, as the infinite one, as the creator who deserves our worship. So he is the center of heaven. He is the one we worship. We sing his praises, Revelation 6 or 5, particularly. And he, he stands always with the marks of the cost of our redemption. Uh, see here my hands and my side where the nails pierced and the spear pierced. But we are in as much as that is a, that is a uh, instance of the glory of the future of the saints who share life with Christ, we will be conformed fully to the body of his glory. That is what Paul said. And other places besides that, but the Philippians. Now, again, let me just make and emphasize, reemphasize this important qualification in saying that. 
By saying Jesus is our model and that we have the same spirit, we are not saying that we can be without sin here or do everything that Jesus did. And of course, you don't see that in the life of his apostles. They had power sometimes to heal, to authenticate their ministry and their witness and them as a messenger and a, a, a truth bearer of the new covenant. But they did not always have that. It came and went according to God's purposes, whereas Jesus manifested no no similar limitation in his possession and manifestation of the Spirit's power. We are always sinners who are redeemed by the perfect life and the sacrifice of Christ. So we have by grace what he had by nature. That is a distinction. What he is by his nature as the eternal son of God, we have by grace through our attachment to him. And so we, we are always distinct from Christ, and yet, inasmuch as the creator is distinct from the creature, we will always bear that mark of not being God. But inasmuch as it is possible for the divine life to be manifest in humanity, we will experience that. Inasmuch as the divine life in the humanity of Christ was manifest, we, being conformed to Christ, being conformed to the body of his glory, seeing him as he is because we will be like him, will share in that. He is the source, we as those who have it by grace. Now, I want to consider, though, what are the implications of that for us here on earth? What are the implications of us sharing the spirit of Christ here on earth? Well, there's several. Uh, I broke it down into just three categories, three general categories, which we won't probably get to, but let me get started. The first is this, or actually before I back up, let me back up to this point first. The blessing, as I mentioned earlier, of the new covenant is that we have the spirit of Christ in us. That is the glory of the new covenant. That is what Christ promised, that he would baptize in the Holy Spirit. We have that, and then in having union with Christ and the spirit that was in Christ, we have something that the Old Testament saint didn't have. We did not, they did not have the same experience and the same fullness of the spirit that we have. And Jesus fulfills this ministry as the Messiah who is the God-man. And that's what we're emphasizing here this morning. He did that as a man who received the promise of God. Listen to how Peter describes this in Acts chapter 2. After declaring that he was in the grave but that in fulfillment of Psalm 16, he wasn't abandoned to Hades and his flesh did not suffer decay. He says in verse 32, this Jesus whom God raised up to which we are all witnesses, verse 33, and having been exalted to the right hand of God, that is the ascension of Christ, that is the ascension of Christ, which we don't talk about much, but is a glorious reality of his ministry to us right now, that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he appears in the presence of the Father for us, where he intercedes for us and for the saints. But here he says, he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Listen, 
having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Did he receive the promise of the Holy Spirit as God, the eternal Son? No. He eternally exists as one nature, as God, with the Holy Spirit. How did he receive, in what way did he receive from the Father the Holy Spirit? He received it as the exalted God-man, as the Messiah, as the promised one. In that sense, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now he says, he has both poured for this, this, which you both see and hear. It awaited his ascension back to the Father when he appeared to the disciples in Acts chapter 1. Are you restoring the kingdom now? He says, don't worry about it. The, time is, the Father has set the time for the epochs and seasons and so forth. He says, but you wait. You wait because you will receive power from on high. And when you receive this power from on high, he says later in verse 8, you will be my witnesses in the world from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other ends of the earth. And you will not be those witnesses, though, until the coming of the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit comes, you will have a power that you did not possess before. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. So that's a promise, then, that we have as a fruit as a glory of the new covenant, that Christ from heaven has given us his spirit, that he has baptized those who belong to him with the Holy Spirit. And that then means to be brought into complete immersion into the life of Christ. It's part of what he, what he described in Romans chapter six. We have been buried with him, died with him, been buried with him, we've been raised with him. The life he lives to God, we live that life as well. We, we are in union with him. And we share that union by the Holy Spirit. I already mentioned John 14 where he says, I'm going away, but I will not leave you as orphans because the helper will come. But when he, the helper will not come until he ascends back to the Father. And when he does, again, he will, he will empower you for ministry. He says this in John 7, the last day of the great, great feast, John stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, or Jesus, excuse me, stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so this gift of the spirit required and anticipated the completed work of Christ. It anticipated his atonement. It anticipated his resurrection. It anticipated his ascension back to the right hand of the Father. And when those things were completed, the Spirit came and the church was born. And the new covenant ministry of the Spirit had begun. And this Spirit that Jesus promised, he said in John again 14, will be with you forever, forever. 
Now, again, let me mention, I, I mentioned this before, but let me clarify it maybe a bit more. This does not mean that the Spirit is simply a replica of Jesus, but that the link between Jesus' believers and the Father is the Holy Spirit, and that the same spiritual power for ministry, for holiness, and fellowship with the Father that was evident in Jesus' life is now experienced by his people who are in union with him by the Spirit. That's the glory of it. That's the glory of it. It's incredible. And again, this is what was promised. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you. That is the glory of what was coming and there are other places as well. Now then, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Well, let me, I'm only gonna get to the first point, but let me at least mention this first point uh, because it's gonna build on something that was already said. It means this, first of all. It means that the Holy Spirit empowers us to be then witnesses for Christ. And again, I mentioned that in relation to Acts, but let me go back to the Gospel of John and just talk about that a bit from the words of Jesus. It means then that the Holy Spirit indwells the people of God, the church, to be witnesses for Christ. In verse 26 of John 15, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, this is his ministry. He will testify about me. And, verse 27, you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. How will the spirit testify? He will testify through the disciples in that case. And as you go on, he will testify at the foundation of that testimony is the ministry of the Spirit in the giving of the new covenant documents of Scripture, which he'll explain more in verse 13. He says, I have many more things to say, verse chapter, of chapter 16, I have many more things to say, you can't bear them now. In other words, until I die and until I'm resurrected and until the Spirit comes, you can't handle them, you won't understand it, it won't make sense to you. There's things that have to be accomplished before anything I say to you would even make sense. They still didn't get that he had to go and be rejected by the chief priests and buried and uh, crucified and buried and raised on the third day. They didn't even get that. How could they be his witnesses? They couldn't be. But he says, you will be my witnesses when this helper comes, when the spirit comes. He had already said in chapter 14, he's gonna bring to remembrance all of these things to you. He's gonna enable you to remember things that you could not on your own. And then he says the spirit of truth, when he comes, he's gonna guide you into all truth. He'll not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me for he will take of mine and he will disclose it to you. That is a promise, beloved, of scripture. He will give you the establishment of the new covenant word of God for the church that will endure that's why Peter would say it's built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Paul will say the same things in Ephesians chapter two. He's saying, I am going to give to you the revelation of me that is to be the instructions to the church and is to be as well the proclamation, your testimony to the world. And this is going to happen because of this ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen because of this ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
He anticipates this later after his resurrection with them. He says in chapter 20 of John, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I send you, where? Into the world. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. In other words, you are apostolic witnesses to my truth. What you declare as true as the will of God for those who are forgiven and in Christ reflects the truth of God in heaven and the spirit of truth in you. What you declare is about those who are outside of Christ reflects the will of God and the truth of God from heaven because of the spirit of truth that is in you. That's why John will say later in his epistle in 1 John chapter 4, just to, just to briefly mention this, but he'll say this, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The one who listens to apostolic doctrine, to his emissaries, to the written word of God, which comes from the spirit of truth through his messengers, kept for the church throughout the ages. The one who reads scripture and hears it and listens to it, they are of God. The one who does not listen to it, the one who does not, is not shaped and sanctified and saved by the word of God, is not of God. It's that simple. And so it is the Spirit of God, though, who is doing this ministry through the apostles so that they might be a witness to the world and by extension, the church, the church. So the Spirit was given from the Father here, enabling his people, although that specifically applies to disciples right here, but by extension, because he says also in John 17, those, not only these do I pray for, but those who believe on me through his word. In other words, that promise not of scripture but of bearing witness and the power of the spirit is going to continue and we, again we saw that next and this is going to be because of the ministry of the holy spirit you are going to be my witnesses in the world and of course we see that right Right after the Spirit came, when Jesus said, you'll receive power from on high, then the Spirit came and they heard them speaking in other tongues. What did they hear them speaking? It says in verse 11 of Acts chapter 2, declaring the mighty works of God. They were declaring the mighty works of God. And then what happens? They said they're drunk. No, they're not drunk. It's too early in the day. And then Peter gets up and he says, brethren, do you not understand what you're seeing? This is exactly what the Old Testament anticipated in Joel chapter 2. And then he declares to them their guilt, their sin. You are the ones who crucified him. You gave him up. And then he declares to them the resurrection, but the death couldn't hold him. The power of the Son of God was too great as the very embodiment of life to be confined to the grave. He is the one who is resurrected. He is the one whom God declares repentance toward him as the essence of saving faith. But all this is going to happen through the ministry of the Spirit. Now, Jesus anticipated this, and this is uh, what we'll look at just briefly. In John chapter 16, he says this. So after he had said in the end of chapter 15, the helper comes and he'll be, he'll be a witness of me, he'll testify about me, and you will testify about me. He then says later to a passage that we're familiar with, he goes back again to this coming ministry of the Spirit. He says, I'm going away. 
Um, but I tell you to your, the truth, in verse 7 of chapter 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is, it is better that I go away. In other words, as long as I am here physically present with you, you lack something that you need. You need me to go away because there's more that I want to do for you and through you. And I can't do it while I'm here. I have to go away. Why? Again, because it was the promise received after the ascension. After he goes back to the Father. John had already said that in chapter 7. We read it. He says, but it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8, and when he comes, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's the ministry of the Spirit. And again, the context here is the ministry of the Spirit who will come, who will bear witness of me and testify about me through you. He is the one who's going to empower this witness and he is the one who is going to convict the world. And what does he mean here? I'll just tell you, this is... Um, this is, a, there are, this is a challenging passage to go specifically what he is, but I, th I think the way that it clarifies, one clarifying thing is, or a helpful way when we come to this is to realize that John often speaks, uh, particularly when he speaks about uh, Christ and God, you never really know, this is a perennial problem uh, with understanding John, is he referring to the Son or is he referring to the Father? He, he uses this ambiguous language all the time, and especially in the epistles. Uh, first and second, third John. In other words, he, he means a fullness in what he says that is not easily limited. And so here when he says he will convict the world of sin concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, the conviction of the world, part of the discussion is, is this convict of the world in terms of bring them to an ownership of their sin, ownership of righteousness and judgment, or does it mean merely to expose those things about the world uh, that they may not give any credence to. So is it ultimately going to judge them or is it ultimately the kind of conviction that brings to faith? And the reality is that both are true. They're both incumbent in the word and they're both the way that that term is used throughout the Gospel of John. And I think that's how he means it here. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment. The idea then is that he will show the world to be guilty, show the world to be wrong. Many of them will reject that and yet the testimony will stand. Some, by the same work of the Spirit, will apprehend their own wrongdoing and turn to Christ. He will convict the world of sin, he says, because they did not believe or they do not believe in me. What does he mean? That as Christ is proclaimed in the world, as his glory is displayed in the proclamation of the gospel through the testimony and the witness of the disciples and of scripture and of the church throughout the ages, the world is found guilty of the sin of unbelief of what God has borne witness to concerning his son. As a matter of fact, John says this very powerfully in John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. You can turn there, I'll just read it. I'm flipping around. And then we're gonna have to wrap this up. But I'll just finish this idea. He says in 1 John chapter 5, he says this, 
If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. How has he testified? Well, he's testified in the life of the son, How do we, in the, ultimately in the resurrection. How do we know about the life of the son and the truth of the word of God uh, of Christ in his ministry, it is through the written word of God and the witnesses. That's how he began his whole epistle. We are witnesses of these things, what our eyes have seen, what our hands have handled. We bear witness to these things, what we've touched, we've seen, we've heard, we've learned. And that is the testimony that God is bearing to his son. And then he says this in verse 10. 10, the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son is life, the one who does not have the son of God, who does not have life. That means that when we proclaim the gospel or if somebody comes to scripture and they hear God's own testimony of Christ and they go away and go, ah, I don't believe that. According to the words of John, that person is saying, well, God's lying. God can't be trusted. I know better than God. I sit myself in a seat of authority above God. My understanding of truth is what will judge God. God will not judge me. And so the world doesn't, of course, view it in that way. Neither did we before we came to Christ. But that is how God views it, and that's what concerns us. And so when he says he will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me, the world is exposed as guilty. They are condemned as guilty because the truth of Christ and who he is has been clearly witnessed to by the disciples in this case, by scripture, by the empty grave, and here by that testifying work of the Spirit. This is how he will convict them. This is why he convicts them. And this was anticipated in John chapter 8, verse 24. He said, I said to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In John chapter 2, he didn't commit himself to those who were believing in his name but it wasn't a right kind of belief. And he says he doesn't need man to bear testimony to himself. And so Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. He wasn't believing in them, essentially, it's literally. He basically said that's not the right kind of thing and I don't need your kind of witness. In chapter 328, we already read it. He said the one who, does not, who believes in him has eternal life. The one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And the Holy Spirit will convict the world of these things. Well, we're out of time. We want to remember the Lord's table. So we'll pick it up here. I really did anticipate possibly getting to the end, but um, we'll finish it next week. As we look, as we finish this convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we look at the other way that the Spirit of Christ is evident in the life of his people. And it has to do with obedience, holiness, and fellowship with God. Obedience, holiness, and fellowship with God. The great glory, however, beloved, that I would have us just to leave and meditate on today is two things. One is the glory and the wonder 
of Christ who lived a perfectly sinless life as a man who had the Holy Spirit. He was the eternal son of God. But listen, as the eternal son of God, he cannot be weak. As the eternal son of God, he cannot be ignorant. As the eternal son of God, he cannot be tempted for God is not tempted with evil. As a human being, as one who is fully man, he can be weak. He can be ignorant. He can be open to the possibility of temptation. The question is, is how did he live? Did he live in his divine power? And if he lived in his divine power as the son of God, then how is he our substitute and example? We're not divine. But if he lived fully as a man, granted in the uniqueness of his person as the son of God who united himself to flesh, then he can be our example. And more importantly, he can be our substitute. He took on flesh and blood, as the writer of Hebrews says, because his children share in flesh and blood. And he had to do it. And so I think one is just not, is to meditate on the glory of Christ as the man of God. One writer said, uh, I'll just get it, but in speaking of uh, the cross, had said, referring, or referring to the garden, and when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, and, and he had done that three times, and then he got up, and, he, and when Judas was coming, he, he walked forward, and he met Judas. He met him. He didn't cower. He met him, knowing what that meant. And the writer said this, a striking statement that stood with me. In that moment, he said, the Son of God, the man, Christ Jesus, willed our salvation. He willed our salvation in this sense. He, by his perfect obedience as a perfect man, the God-man, submitted himself to the Father's plan, which would accomplish our redemption through his own suffering. And so we meditate on that. When he defeated Satan, he did so as a man without sin, but as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the same spirit that we have and enables us, stumbling though we may be, resting completely on the finished work of Christ as our righteousness is the one who brings us into the presence of God as we looked at it at Christmas Eve briefly. We rely on him and we stand in him, but we also share with him the life that he had and demonstrated while walking this earth. Well, there's more to say, and we'll, we'll wrap that up next week. Um, but we celebrate our Savior in the Lord's table. We remember him who came in the flesh and who gave himself for us and for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sin, for the giving to us of his life. And he gave us these symbols to remind us of this great glory. It's what the church has done ever since the resurrection of the Lord and the establishment of the church. We have remembered the Lord's table. We stand with our brethren throughout the ages who have gone before us and our brethren in the future who will come after us as the Lord tarries. And we each will remember these words and these truths that we as the church of God have received from the Lord here through the ministry of the apostle who's repeating it 
what was delivered through him to us, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the marvelous wonder of the new covenant and the gospel and the glories of being united to Christ, this body that he gave is also, while he gave it for us and for our salvation, it was his spilled blood for our atonement. We, by union with him, are also declaring us to be his body on earth, that we are a reflection of those who are indwelled by his spirit who are united to him. That's why Paul, the risen Lord, could say to the Saul before he became the apostle, why are you persecuting me? As much as you do that to the Christians, you do that to me. And later Paul would say of himself, I'm filling up what is lacking in the Lord's afflictions. Doesn't mean his atoning afflictions. He means in that case, in Colossians chapter two, that hatred that is meant for Christ, I'm bearing in myself through my ministry because we are his body on earth. But we remember that we are his body because he laid down his own for us. And it says in verse 25, or in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is his atoning death, and that is his resurrection. That is his present ministry of the ascension right now in the Father, and it is his future ministry of establishing the kingdom when he when he upholds justice on the earth, destroys the kingdom of Antichrist, cast him and the false beast into the pit and all of those who followed him and righteousness dwells on the earth at the end of which he will be a final judgment of Satan and then will establish the new heavens and the new earth where we and resurrected bodies will enjoy him forever and ever and ever. And when we take these elements, we are symbolically declaring that to be true. We're saying that's true. I believe that. We are the people, as we talked in baptism class, who have a king and we're just waiting for his return. He is king. He is Lord. And by doing this together, we're just saying we're waiting for him to come and establish the kingdom of which we are citizens. In verse 25 then, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my atoning blood, my blood shed for you. Do this as often as you think of it, in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Nothing magical happens when we do that, but our faith is strengthened by the remembrance of these truths as the Spirit applies them to our hearts and to our lives. And what is the fruit of us doing this together? What is the fruit of our gathering? What is the fruit of this proclamation? Is that we would live as his witnesses in the world that we would pursue holiness, that we would pursue to be godly in every area of our life. And when we fail, and surely you will, as I do daily, we will confess our sin. We will rest again in the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit, seek to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, who is our shepherd. ...of the truths of the gospel. Help us to think on them and the implications in our lives. And we pray, Holy Spirit, please, Make us a people who reflect the life of Christ. 
and all of that for your glory and to fill our hearts with the joy and the anticipation that you are our king who is returning, who will return and is coming. Let us be found faithful when you do. And so we, we leave, Lord, in the confidence of your grace and the power of your spirit to follow our shepherd. And in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.